Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Jane Taylor, EDD, about her contributions to the Surviving Sepsis Campaign by utilizing quality improvement science. Dr. Taylor is improvement advisor to various institutions such as Institute for Healthcare Improvement, CCM, and others. I would like to welcome and thank Dr. Taylor for joining us and to be able to share her wisdom with us. Uh, before we begin, I actually want to make sure that uh, we ask Dr. Taylor about any disclosures that she has. I have absolutely nothing to disclose. Thanks for asking, Ludwig. Of course. Okay, so we will get started. Um, obviously, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is a huge project for the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And um, let's start by talking about your involvement with the campaign. Maybe you could describe for us, Dr. Taylor, how you initially joined in and your role in it and uh, how you've seen things happen in terms of the implementation of the campaign. Great. Thanks for asking. I got involved. It's really kind of an exciting story. I was invited to a meeting at IHI as the Improvement Advisor to be part of an expert meeting made up of representatives from the International Sepsis Campaign. And in that uh, meeting, actually, we began to birth the um, two sepsis bundles. And so I feel really lucky that I was part of that early in the 2000s. And then I worked on the national sepsis campaign for SCCM for a few years. And then after we really worked and understood how to identify and treat sepsis in the ED and the ICU, we realized we really wanted to work on decreasing sepsis, recognizing it, and decreasing it on the wards. So I uh, came to help SCCM do that work, again, not as a clinician, but as an expert in improvement science. So that would be the testing of good ideas, closing the gap, learning how to customize uh, use of the bundles and screening uh, for individual institutions so that they could actually make these changes work for them. So um, I would say it's been an almost 15-year relationship and involvement in reducing sepsis. And now I'm working in India on neonates to reduce sepsis. So it just doesn't stop. <laughs> That's great. I, and we'll talk later, but it it sounds like you also recently worked in Ghana, so it definitely sounds like a very international experience. Well, and I haven't worked in Ghana, but my colleagues have, and um, I made some recordings for the society on how to spread and scale up changes once you've figured out how to make them work on a unit, and that uh, those uh, YouTube videos are based on the work that we did in Ghana, IHI did in Ghana, called Project 5 Alive which was to reduce mortality of children zero to five years of age. Ah, uh, got it. What Dr. Taylor and I are talking about is there are quite a few excellently done YouTube videos about the tools that one uses to implement a particular uh, medical quality improvement campaign. And yeah, the, the, the one that I looked at involving Dr. Taylor refers to the Project Fives Alive campaign, which, well, Dr. Taylor, I think I should have you describe it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Those YouTube videos, by the way, are accessed through your SCCM website, uh, and they're available anytime that a provider or a team wants to look at them to really consider how to think about scaling up good ideas. So we recently worked on reducing sepsis on medical surgical units, and most of the participating hospitals, this was a Betty and Gordon Moore Foundation grant and also 
uh, hospital system in Florida participated, but most of those participants had a pilot unit. And what they did is they perfected screening every patient, every shift, every day, and then responding um, if there was a suspicion of sepsis and then treatment. So once those ideas are perfected or really implemented on an individual unit, they're ready to be scaled up. And scale up means spread across the institution. So it's not just one particular medical surgical unit, but it would be all of those units. And so there's an art and science of the pace of scale up and planning for it. And that's what we've covered on those videos. But in a nutshell, we recommend scaling up in increments of five. And the reason for that is, and it could be from one provider to five providers, and then to 25 providers, or it could be from one unit to five unit to all of the units in a hospital, or it could be from one hospital to five hospitals and so forth. But the idea in scaling up is to take the changes that you've actually tested, contextualized, and made work in your pilot unit available to others. And that availability, the increments of five are used to expose systemic barriers that would prevent broader scale-up or implementation. So what we learned is that a particular unit can do all kinds of workarounds and make things happen almost by sheer hard work, will, and vigilance. But if you want to scale up changes, you're going to start bumping into systemic barriers. For example, there's no place to document this in the medical record. Or how do we make the medical record alerts work with the nursing assessment? And those sorts of things, if they're not overcome, will prevent the project from success. So we think that if you scale up in increments of five, you can identify systemic barriers and remove them as you do the scale-up work so that by the time you spread, um, the organization is ready to receive the change. That is really a wonderful lesson for all of us. I, I, I think a lot of us are involved uh, locally in our institutions for surviving sepsis. I mean, trying to improve uh, the care that we deliver. And it's good to know and to learn from you about the potential pitfalls and in designing a system that is going to be rigorous enough to, to be spread, like you said. I was going to ask you about it later, but maybe we could just discuss this now. What has your experience been over the years in terms of helping to educate clinicians and teams and institutions about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Do you get involved in training other leaders? Do you get involved in training particular implementation teams? What, what has your experience been? So the way we usually set these up, we start with an expert meeting, and the experts are the clinicians that know the most about um, these conditions, and in this case, it's sepsis. So uh, it's experts from your very own organization. And we meet and come up with an, a way to organize the best theory to date we have to screen, identify, and respond to treat sepsis and do follow-up. And in that expert meeting, we create a one-page diagram of the changes that are necessary and sufficient to get the results that we want to get. So in this case, we wanted to reduce mortality, sepsis mortality on medical surgical units by 50%. And did we have a baseline? Um, with a little bit of work, we got our baseline. But we start with this expert meeting, and then we organize teams they want to work on this, and the teams are usually made up of a, a provider clinician, um, usually an intensivist, or a, a very savvy internist or hospitalist. And this project that we did, by the way, on the medical surgical units was a collaboration between the Society for 
your society and also the hospitalist, the National Hospitalist um, Society. So it was really a collaboration of hospitalists and um, intensivists. So it was, it was very great to see that actually bloom. But we start with teams, and the teams have a clinical expert, usually a nursing clinical leader, and then someone who has the power to make changes sits on that team. And that team comes to a series of learning sessions designed to teach the clinical changes that need to be made to bring about improvement and the improvement science that supports the ability to learn how to contextualize evidence-based changes for each individual hospital how to know when you're ready to go to implementation and do implementation in a systematic way so that you don't prematurely implement change, but you're really ready for it. Everyone's educated, and the, we have a high degree of belief in those changes before they're implemented. And then finally, after about nine months or a, a year, uh, teams are usually ready to spread. And I like to use the metaphor of an accordion, that Teams come together from all across the country and learn together how to make these changes. They go apart, go back to their institutions in the world, and they make these changes and learn how to do them in their particular hospitals. And usually they're held together on a listserv or um, monthly conference calls. And then every three or four months they come back, share what they've learned with each other. They kind of become their own faculty because they're learning a lot about how to do this in a wide range of conditions small hospitals, large hospitals, teaching hospitals, community hospitals. And so this accordion comes together and expands again in action periods. And this action learning model can take place nine months or three years. It depends on the complexity of the project and the extent of scale. My job as the improvement advisor is to give teams the wherewithal to be able to test changes, implement them, and spread them. And to use data to understand if the improvements they're making or the changes they're making really bring about improvement. Got it. Yeah, I, I learned something from the YouTube videos that we were just talking about. You were discussing the data that people measure and you emphasize something that I didn't think about before, which is you want to think about data as not being used for judgment, but rather being used to generate inquiry and curiosity, right? Right, and learning. So what we really want to know is if we make a change, say, that every patient needs to be screened every day, every shift, to see if they're developing sepsis, um, we need to know if that's having an effect or not. So we need to know how reliable are we screening patients, and then is that really increasing early identification or not? Is it increasing the um, implementation of the bundles, and is it decreasing the time to treat? And is it decreasing mortality? So we look at data over time in something called a runner control chart in order to understand that as opposed to looking at pre and post data and not knowing until the very end whether we succeeded or not. We want to learn our way into results by using data as feedback for learning, not judgment. Yeah, I really like that concept. And in your YouTube videos, you also talk a lot about the way to use human resources, the way to form teams, what qualities you're looking for in the leaders. Can, can you just briefly explain that a little bit more to our audience and um, you know, maybe give us your philosophy about the makeup of the teams that implement these changes? Yeah, I think you need a combination of frontline staff that understand how the work gets done and can help, are committed to doing the work and committed to the improvement idea. 
And then you also need, so you might want a couple of nurses who are staff nurses. And then you want a provider that understands the importance, has influence, and can work with other providers on the unit. And then a leader who is curious and is guided by inquiry to help the team develop these changes. So the leader needs to be asking questions like, tell me what the last test of change you tried was. What are you learning? Oh, do you have some data that shows whether we're getting results or not? Have you thought about trying this? And they may actually suggest a change. And then the staff, team members, can do some testing themselves, but they also need to be able to go out on the floor or go out on their unit and recruit others to test on their behalf. And someone has to kind of keep their arms around all of this testing and and create a board in a a space where staff are that documents uh, what tests are underway, what are we learning. It invites others to put ideas up that deserve testing. Um, So that's the kind of makeup of a local team to do the work. But the team can't do it all themselves. They really have to recruit others. So the provider has to be on the lookout for Who's the next provider that wants to join in this work? And how do we want to scale this up on the unit? Are we going to just do all the hospitalists? Are we going to do the hospitalists and the community physicians? So it's it's unique to each organization, but that's kind of how the team works. And they meet every week probably for half an hour or every two weeks for an hour and report what they're testing, what they're learning, what the data is showing, and share that with each other and ask themselves, what do we have to do next to continue to bring about improvement? And they work off of that document of the necessary and sufficient changes that we give them for some guidance. Very, very cool. That made me think about the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, in your experience working with various institutions, have you noticed any um, quote-unquote cultural differences, not, not in terms of you know, various cultures, but, for example, a academic institution, a, a government-supported public hospital a community hospital, a hospital that um, belongs to a um, you know health healthcare organization. Are, are, are there quote unquote cultural differences um, amongst those institutions where you have you have to tailor your approach slightly differently, or does it all end up being pretty much being the same thing? I'll answer that in two ways. One is a model that IHI developed, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which says that change happens based on the will of the group, their ability to execute and test changes, and having good ideas. So those are the three components that are are actually the catalyst, the most important components. That said, a small hospital can improve much faster than a large hospital because of complexity. So a small hospital is less complex. There's less relationships that have to be negotiated. It's much easier to make change. So the size of the institution, the complexity makes a big difference. Leadership makes a big difference, their willingness to eliminate barriers. And then the other thing is that anytime you have, you're in a teaching facility because of turnover of residents, it adds a layer of complexity because they need to be brought up to speed and brought up to speed quickly um, about the changes and what their role is with these changes and, and how they interact with the new model. So I think that those are the items that are most important. And then transparency, a willingness to be completely transparent about the data and the testing and what's being learned and including families in the work, patients and families. Oh, Yes, so they should be on a team. 
I left that out, and thank you for helping me remember. <laughs> um, a couple of patients who maybe have survived sepsis are very powerful on a team and family members. And also, we want family members involved in this work because they notice change in mental status before anyone, and they know their loved one better than anyone. So they're, in a way, they're experts about uh, their family member, and we want them engaged in, in the process and included in rounds and including in understanding if there's been a change in the patient's condition. So um, there's this old expression, um, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And when you have a couple of patients or family members on a team, it's like putting a high-octane gas or fuel into that engine. It really can bring about um, change faster because they're a lot less empathetic about the um, inability or organizational uh, resistance to change. And as one family member said to me, I'm not afraid of the man. And so he was willing to advocate all the way to the governor's office on behalf of the team's work. They're powerful allies. That's great. What are some of the incentives that do work in terms of getting the members of the implementation team to do their work well and expediently? I think the it's not an extrinsic reward. It's mostly seeing that data respond and seeing the mortality rate go down and seeing the early identification rate go up. So one is data is a very powerful motivator. Sometimes you do have to segment data by providers or care teams, and that's also motivating. Having people be able to make suggestions of their good ideas because they understand the system, they've worked there for a long time, Taking people's good ideas and testing them and learning from them is a very powerful motivation. And really improving care, I think, is the most powerful. But there's this idea of inclusion that makes a big difference, that everybody's educated and prepared for the new work makes it much easier for them to do the right thing. So designing the work so the right thing gets done, training everybody so they know what to do, increasing skills, including people and using data, I think are the most important factors to motivate a group. How did you go about becoming an educator in the medical field? I'm curious, what, what is your background? <laughs> so um, my background is hospital operations. I was a hospital CEO for and um, CEO in healthcare for almost 10 years. And during that time in 1986, Paul Patalden, who was a pediatrician, introduced all of us to um, Dr. Deming's work, and I became an improver, but from the perspective of a hospital leader, first as a COO and then later as a CEO. So after I got exposed to um, leading improvement work in my own hospitals and communities, I really fell in love with it, and I decided that I could be more effective working to spread what I knew about improvement science to a lot of organizations rather than just my one organization. So I set out at the same time to get a doctorate from Teachers College, Columbia University in New York, on adult learning and leadership. And this really enabled me to expand, well, really increase my effectiveness, I think, as an improvement advisor. And I did my research on a group of middle managers that were experiencing a transformation by doing improvement science. And I wanted to know did they really have a transformation in their perspective and the way that they saw the world? And was this an effective leadership development program? 
And it turns out, uh, yes, they did, and it is an effective leadership development program. So that's how I got into improvement science, and that's been, um, gosh, about 30, 30 years. And actually, you know what, um, Ludwig, I started doing um, improvement work on the Space Shuttle Orbiter, and I was a reliability engineer, and that's where I got exposed to Deming's work. And then when I went into healthcare and got a MHA, I kept saying, where is improvement science? And in the early days, we had done obedience um, structure plus process equals outcome, and we had quality assurance and a lot of inspection, but we didn't have improvement. So I was really happy in 1986 to meet Paul Pataldin and watch how he was able to integrate Dr. Deming's ideas into um, healthcare. I like that. Well, you and I had talked about beforehand about the uh, pearls that you really wanted people to have in terms of their own efforts at implementing Mm -hmm. um, surviving sepsis. So I I was hoping that we could definitely list those in this podcast. So sure. Let me, let me close with that. Um, I would say one, get a great list of changes. So we have a a driver diagram um, that we developed for the society that could guide the work, get a team, And as Don Berwick says, get a clock and start the work and set out and say, what is it we want to accomplish? Try it on a small scale, on a unit. How will you know that those changes are an improvement? Set up a little family of measures so you can tell and then start working those changes, testing them, contextualizing them to work in your unique setting and avoid the temptation for early premature implementation. Make sure that when you implement uh, you have a high degree of belief in the changes. Staff are really ready, and the cost of going back, if, it, if you're not successful, is low. And then once you've implemented the changes and you've got data that show that they're reliably working, develop a spread plan and scale up in increments of five, depending on where your perspective, where you sit, either five providers, five units, five institutions, and make sure you have someone on your team who can eliminate systemic barriers that will pop up and get in your way, especially um, now um, the improvement technology barriers. And it will be successful if you follow this simple order and use data for learning and not judgment and let the work be its own reward. And I think something that you said to me that I found very inspiring is you really stressed about how it takes individuals, it takes each person's human response to actually make the quality improvement that we cannot rely on, for example, an electronic medical record. That's right. It takes a human, spread is a, is a human and a social activity, and it takes people. We can't rely on alerts. We have to have nurses looking at patients. We have to have providers confirming. We have to have providers cooperating and responding. It takes people to do this work, and it really is a human enterprise. I think that's very exciting that, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to each one of us. And, you know, I think it's important for all of us listening to you talk today to remember that, that we all actually really matter in this Surviving Sepsis campaign. That's right. And it really makes a difference to patients and families. And anything that we can do to reduce morbidity and mortality is, is really our are my ethical obligation. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you today and share a little bit with your members. Oh, thank thank you so much for joining us. I think 
That's a really nice way to wrap up this conversation. I'd like to thank all of our audience for joining us, and thank you, Dr. Taylor, for joining us. It's going to conclude another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.seccm.org backslash care for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast team, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Ludwig Lynn, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altabates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.